It's, it's interesting how, you know, in, people view alcohol in church and then people outside of church view alcohol. You know, Tom Holland, who's an actor, played Spider-Man and talks about kind of his story of drinking and not drinking and all these things. He described it as the most deceptive drug in the world. And he, the reason he says it's the most deceptive drug in the world is because it's the most socially accepted drug in the world. And if many people knew really what was behind alcohol, what it actually causes, they'd actually refuse to drink it. But since it's socially accepted, they actually buy in. Here's just some quick stats we're going to throw on the screen. 50% of murders take place in an alcohol-infused environment. 50%. Look at it. 25 to 50% of assaults involve alcohol. 40% of child abusers are admitted to be under the influence of alcohol at the time of the abuse. 40 to 60% domestic violence cases involved alcohol. Alcohol is almost the sole cause of date rape. 100% of DUIs are caused by alcohol. And it's a reason why people think they can dance, which may be the worst crime of all. Right, so if you just throw that back up, if you just took alcohol out of the equation, 50% of the murders in America go away. If you just take alcohol out of the equation, 25 to 50% of assaults go away. 40% of child abuse stops. 40 to 60% of domestic violence cases stop. It's almost all date rape stops. And it's just because there's one drink that we bought into that, that people think is actually beneficial that actually on the back end is not influential or beneficial at all. And so it's interesting to me just seeing how people think about alcohol where some look at it, even in church we're looking at it as a blessing, others look at it as a curse. But looking at how the world is starting to view alcohol is really interesting. And so I saw Tom Holland, but if you throw up some of those other pictures, just real quick, Tom Holland is completely sober, does not drink a lick of alcohol at all. Go to the next one, keep going through them. Who is that? All the women said Bradley Cooper. Bradley Cooper doesn't drink alcohol at all. Keep going. You got Brad Pitt. It looks like he drank way too much. Jack Harlow does not drink at all. Jennifer Hudson has never had a drink of alcohol in her entire life. Lana Del Rey, who's, you know, in Florence all the time, she's not drinking when she's in Florence. Keep going. Miley Cyrus. Of all people, I would at least say I drink to have an excuse for the way I act. <laughs> does not drink. What's the next one? Pharrell does not drink and has never drank. And you can keep going on and on and on and on. And it's these celebrities that have realized the backside of alcohol is so detrimental that they don't even want to participate in it. Or they got so deep in alcohol, they realized they had to find a way out of it. And so the whole world, the celebrities that, that we look at as setting the culture, setting the tone, are actually pulling away from alcohol. But here's the interesting part. The world and culture and celebrities are stepping away from alcohol, but the church has been embracing it and accepting it. That sounds counterintuitive to me, that in our, in our desire to reach the world, we're becoming like the world, and the world has woken up and is like, no, 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 I don't even want a part of that. I don't want to, I don't want to embrace that. I don't want any part of that. And, and so it's interesting to me to understand why in the world would do church people embrace that which the world doesn't even embrace anymore. And so many of y'all know my story. I grew up in an alcoholic home. I was, I was around alcohol early. I remember being six years old, tasting beer for the first time and thought, why would anybody ever drink whatever this is? I remember us giving it to the dogs, like let the dogs drink beer. That's how redneck we were. Like I remember in, in being 12 years old, 
and have an alcohol and my friend, like there was a bottle of Everclear PGA on top of the refrigerator. My buddy wanted to drink some. I was like, bro, you can't drink that. Like that'll kill you. It's like gasoline. He's like, no, no. And he takes a big swig at 12 years old, falls down in the gravel driveway. He's like, I am dying. And I told him, I said, I'm not telling my parents you stole their liquor. You're going to die right there. Right throughout high school, one of my buddies, he drank so much from eighth grade and freshman year, he had cleaned up by his sophomore year. Try to get away from it, go to the Air Force and boot camp. It's dry. Obviously, I go to Fort Huachuca, Arizona. The base commander made drinking age uh, 18 on the base to prevent people from going to Mexico to drink. And that's when it began. I drank every single day from there until I got saved. At one point, at work at night, I would drink a 40-ounce still reserved 211, which is the most ghetto drink you can drink every day just so I could sleep. I've watched alcohol ruin people. I've watched it ruin ministries. I've watched it ruin families. I've watched it ruin marriages. I've watched it. And so the question that I would want to ask you before we can get into this is, why would I participate in moderation in that which God has delivered me from? And why would I participate in moderation in that which God is still delivering people from? And so to understand, I want you today just kind of put your traditions aside. Whether that's you're completely anti-drinking or your moderation in drinking, I want you to take those out of the way and let the Bible be your filter in how you live your life. Not culture, not past experiences, but what does the Bible say about drinking? And there's two verses I want to read. First one is Proverbs 23. And Proverbs 23 says it this way. Skip down to verse 29. It says this. Who has woe and who has sorrow? Who has strife? Who has complaining? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes? Here's, here's the answer. Those who tarry long over wine, those who go to try mixed wine, do not look at wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup and goes down smoothly. For in the end, it bites like a serpent and stings like an adder, which is a venomous snake. Your eyes will see strange things. Girls that you used not think were pretty now look pretty is what that means. And your heart utters perverse things. You will be like the one who lies down in the midst of the sea, like the one who lies on the top of the mast. They struck me, you will say, but I was not hurt. They beat me, but I did not feel it. When shall I awake? I must have another drink. Go to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 15 says, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. That, that, that scripture, I mean, it's very clear you cannot get drunk, but he says, don't get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Any recovery program will tell you, you can't just stop doing one thing. You have to replace it with something else. And here Paul is on the forefront of recovery saying, hey, don't get drunk. Instead, be so filled with God you don't need anything else. Be so caught up in hymns and songs and prayer and loving one another and serving one another that you're filled with other things other than what you used to be filled with. And so these two scriptures are pivotal on how we're going to unpack what is our view of drinking. And not even... Is it sin to drink? That's not any question. We can argue about that all day long. But should 
Christians drink. Not whether right or wrong, is this sin or is this not sin, but should you, even if it's right, should you still drink? And if it's wrong, obviously you should not drink. And so point number one would be this, drunkenness is a sin. There is no ifs, ands, or buts. If you are drinking where you get buzzed and tipsy, you are in sin. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. But the question would be, what is being drunk? And here's what I've learned. I'm never drunk compared to the person who's more drunk than me. I'm not drunk, but in, in theory. Right? So, well, I'm just buzzed. You know, they're drunk. We think of drunk as being passed out on the, on the couch or passed out in the corner or getting a DUI. We, we try to elevate the level of being drunk so that way it fits within our scale of being okay to drink. And so I'd have to ask you, what is your level of drunk? What, what does that even mean? Well, biblically, it means you're under the influence of something. Biblically, it means you're, you're being influenced by something other than God. So the moment you start drinking and it influences your thinking, you are therefore drunk according to the Bible. And one uh, medical journal says this. There's, there's multiple levels of, of being drunk. Throw those up there. Sublimination, intoxication, is when your blood alcohol content is between 0.01 and 0.05. For most people, that is one drink. It says you may not look like you've been drinking, but your reaction time and behavior and judgment is already altered. And depending on weight, most men and women enter this stage after one drink. So after one drink, you're already under the influence of it. The next level would be this. Euphoria. During the early stages of drinking, your brain releases more dopamine. That's why people like it. And it starts when you're getting buzzed or tipsy at 0.03 to 0.12. That is basically being drunk according to the law. Number three is excitement. At this stage, your alcohol level is from 0.09 to 0.25, and you're legally intoxicated in every single state. Your speech is slurred, your vision's blurred, all of the above. Keep going. Confusion, 0.18 to 0.3, which means you have had a long night, which means your coordination, your cerebellum's starting to be impacted, you're losing consciousness, all of the above. Go to the next one which is stupor, which is what your father-in-law did at the last wedding reception you were at with him. If you reach a BAC of 0.25, you're concerning signs of alcohol poisoning. Go to the next one, which is coma, 0.35. You're at the risk of going into a coma. Now, when I've heard, talked to believers about, you know, getting drunk is a sin, they say, well, I don't get drunk. This is what they equate being drunk to. If your level of being drunk biblically is you pass out, you were in sin a long time ago. And then go to the last one. Death. Oh, yeah, that's, that's a great level to get to. A BAC over 0.45 may cause death due to alcohol poisoning. So the question would be, when people say, well, you know, Pastor, it's okay to drink. You just can't get drunk. What you're literally doing is, is opening a doorway to sin, and you don't even realize you opened it. Because biblically, it means that you are being under the influence of something other than the Holy Spirit. And the Greek word for drunkard is not somebody who's cooter brown, who's passed out all the time. The, the biblical word for drunkard is somebody who stays close to wine. Which means you may not be drunk, but every time I see you, you have a glass in your hand. Every time I see you at the restaurant, there's always a beer on your table. That is the Bible's definition of drunkard. It means you're identified by having a drink in your hand continually. And so us trying to figure out who are we as people, how, how do we look at alcohol biblically? 
And so there's, there's a couple words, the Hebrew word that most time refers to wine is yayin. Yayin just means it's a, it's a juice of the grape, basically. Then you have the word shakar. Shakar means strong drink or liquor, which means it's more potent than just wine. And then in the New Testament, you have the word oinos, which means new wine, which means very early grape juice, maybe fermented a little bit. And people say, yeah, but Jesus drank wine. No, the word that you never see anybody say Jesus was drinking wine. The only time you can even accuse them of that is at the Last Supper. And it doesn't use the word oinos or any other word for wine. It uses the word that means the fruit of the vine. That's the only time. And so how do we see what the, the Bible says compared to us trying to place our views now? Because this is a biblical interpretation. What on one. We can either... Take what the Bible says and apply it to us today in our culture, or we take our culture today and apply it to what the Bible said 2,000 years ago. And when it comes to drinking, many times we try to take our culture and we say, you know, Jesus at the Last Supper, that was really a party, that was like a bar, they were drinking this, they were drinking that. No, that wasn't the case at all. In our culture, in our culture of partying, you can't place a partying culture on Jewish customs and culture because it wasn't a partying culture. It was a family-oriented culture. And so the wine then, this yayin or oinos, was fermented not like Jack Daniels in a distillery. It was dissipated. What that means is they'd squash the grapes out, make the grape juice, and they would dehydrate it to make it a paste-like syrup. So those that are sipping on scissor or sipping on New Testament wine, this, this paste that was concentrated, kind of like the juice you'd buy in the freezer section of the grocery store. It's this paste so they could carry it around with them in their satchel or in their bag or in a wineskin. And they would add water to it later to rehydrate it so that it would be drinkable. And so the dissipation, it was a rule of thumb in every single culture in the Bible that they had to dilute the wine to be drinkable. As a matter of fact, they would say it was barbaric to drink undiluted wine. So much so that every culture actually has a list of the ratios. The Jewish culture was a ratio of three to one. Which means in the New Testament wine, the max, max BAC, the max alcohol level on there would be 10 to 11%. But then after Jews diluted it 3 to 1, it would be a max of 1 to 3% alcohol rate. So I want to show you this. So throw up those, that sliding scale. So when you see the sliding scale, this is alcohol by volume in all the drinks we drink. Now granted, the Bible Maybe we could argue, argues that wine, New Testament wine is permissible, but shakar is anything that's strong drink or liquor, which has more alcohol in it than New Testament wine. So if you just start, Everclear, pure grain alcohol, 95%. Vodka, 40 to 95%. That's the gift of Russia to the world. Gin, 36 to 50%. Rum, 36 to 50%. That's the gift of Margaritaville and Jimmy Buffett, God rest his soul. Whiskey, thanks to Jack Daniels, 36 to 50%. Tequila, the gift of Mexico to America, 50 to 51%. Fortified wine, 16 to 24. Unfortified, 14 to 16%. Malt beverages, 15%. Seltzers, that's your white claws, 5%. Beer, 4 to 8%. Biblical wine, 1 to 3%. Non-alcoholic beer, 0.5%. What that means is, New Testament wine was closer to non-alcoholic beer than it was anything else in this list. And the Bible may not condemn drinking wine, but it always, always, always condemns strong drink or shakar. 
So anything above this list, the Bible's already condemned, which means, okay, we can argue that you can drink your glass of wine, but you cannot drink your margarita, your mimosas, your beer, your IPAs, your, your margaritas, your daiquiris. All those are considered strong drink by the Bible, and it strongly condemns it over and over and over again, continually. And so we have to figure out who we are as a people to make sure we're doing what God has called us to do and be who God has called us to be. So there's three views, Christian-wise, on drinking alcohol. Just three. First one is this prohibition, which means you're convicted that drinking any alcohol is a sin. Therefore, you don't drink at all. Right? So maybe you've been convicted that, I don't want to drink, and I feel if I drink, I feel like I'm in sin. That is Romans 14. That is your conviction. That means if you drink, you're in sin. If God has convicted you and you do it, you're in sin. But it also means I can't place my convictions on somebody else. Now, in the views, there's three views. This is probably Toya's viewpoint, where if she was the drink, she would think she's going directly to hell. She would slide down the dirt directly into hell. So much so that we were in Haiti a few years ago, and we were at a church service, and they were doing communion. So if you don't know much about communion, in different settings, once they give the communion elements out, they have to be drank. They believe it turns into the body and blood of Jesus. And so they pass out the, the elements, and there's like this big chunk of bread. And, and I hear somebody in the background, and this nice Alabama twang says, it smells like alcohol. And I'm like, Toy's like, we cannot drink this. This has got, uh, this is real wine. We cannot drink this. Like, uh, and, uh, and I'm like, babe, listen, we can't offend the Haitians. And she said, well, I'm not drinking it. She skips communion. I have to drink mine, hers, and everybody else's. <laughs> Just playing. But that's how strong her belief is in it. And then we get, not, we get home that night, and it's our debrief, our devotional. And one of the, uh, Ben, who's Ben Tate, is one of our, uh, it's Meredith's son, we're going through, what's the highlight of your day? He's like, he's real quiet. He says, man, I, I just never thought I'd have to come all the way to Haiti to have my first drink of alcohol. It was great. <laughs> right, so prohibition means you believe it's sinful and it shouldn't be drinking at all. Right, the next one is abstention. Abstention just means that you believe that maybe there's a case that you can drink wine, not, not strong drink, not alcohol, but you can drink wine but you don't because there's no benefits to you, your family, or the kingdom of God if you do. Right? So this would be mine. Like, we can argue. I know leaders and pastors that, that drink wine or drink. Like, that's on you. But for me, my conviction is even if I'm allowed to, I'm not going to because there's no benefit to me. Even if, it's, even if God said, hey, it's okay, you can drink wine, I still wouldn't do it. Why? Because there is no benefit to my walk with Jesus. There is no benefit to my marriage. There is no benefit for my kids. There is no benefit to anybody else. And Watchman Nee, one of my favorite authors, he tells this story when he was on a mission trail. He's in this journey. There would never been any Christians in this village. This guy's a complete drunk. I mean, drinking at every meal. He leads him to the Lord. He gets saved, but he didn't talk to him about his drinking. Three years later, Watchman Nee is going up through the same village, wants to have dinner with this guy he led to the Lord three years previously, he sits down at dinner, and the guy's drinking water and tea instead of alcohol. So Watchman Nee said, hey, like, what other missionaries have been through here? The guy says, none since you've been here. He said, there's no pastors, no. He said, no. He said, then who told you to stop drinking? He said, the Holy Spirit did. And so that's abstention where I'm not going to drink, but I'm going to trust the Holy Spirit to convict you 
that you think alcohol is fine, drinking is fine, as long as you don't get drunk. But again, we don't know what the line between being drunk and not drunk is. And, and those things, when you start saying that, is where I really get disturbed in church world. They say, why, Pastor? Because when people start saying, well, Pastor, you know, I don't get drunk. You know, I just drink a glass of wine with dinner. Well, one, there's lots of reasons. We could talk about why in a second, why I think that's unwise and not godly. But here's what it comes down to. He said, I'm just having a glass of wine with dinner. Throw up that graphic. This, this is what the world does. The size of a wine glass has more than quadrupled since the 1700s. It went from 66 mil to 152. Just in the last 10 years, it's went up almost 20%, which that 449 is half a liter. So when you say you have a glass of wine, you're not actually having a glass of wine anymore. You're having half a bottle. And so moderation then has this loophole in it that you can stretch the meaning to fit around your culture and what you're wanting to accomplish. And what is extremely sad for me is this, that it may not be sinful to drink a glass of wine, but it does not honor God and maybe it doesn't even honor your family and doesn't advance the kingdom and has so many risks involved that when you break out all the scriptures in the Bible, it's like a five to ten to one ratio of warnings against alcohol to anything that may be positive. And so you may ask, well, why do people drink then? I think many people drink, one, they drink because it's a social norm, that they feel pressure. Me and Toy just got back from Italy. We were the only people that didn't drink wine the entire week. That is their sweet tea. And they drink and they drink and they drink. When, you are un, when you're not confident in who you are, you will change who you are to be accepted by the masses. And many times with alcohol, people are so scared to stand out, they will sacrifice their convictions to fit in. Social norm. Many times it's self-medicating, that you have mental issues, you have depression, you have anxiety, you have grief, you have sorrow, and you don't know how to process that. And so you use alcohol as a self-medication. Even the Bible says that they give it to the, the people who are perishing and dying because they're trying to numb them before they die. So maybe for you, it's self-medicating. And I would tell you, that's terrible. Because God can't heal a sorrow that you numb with something else. God can't heal a pain that you're self-medicating on your own. God can't do something to solve your problem if you're covering up your problem. There's also past experiences. Every memory you have is around alcohol, family tradition. It may be addiction that actually addiction to alcohol is not just mentally that your body starts to crave the sugars that the yeast creates and you become addicted to it. And I believe for many Christians, it's just rebellion. It's just they want to prove they're not legalistic, so they begin to drink just to show the world, I'm not like one of those legalistic Christians. You know, I'm more like you. and You know, it's all about love, and I'm not legalistic. But here are some reasons why I don't drink. And our culture here is the culture of we are abstaining from alcohol because what God has given us is so vitally valuable and important to the world and to this community that it's not worth risking over a couple of glasses of wine. So number one is this. I want my mind to be clear and sober. I want it to be clean, clear and sober. I don't want my mind to be influenced by anything else. I don't want my mind to be influenced by alcohol, by drugs, by the media. I want my mind to be clear. 1 Peter 4, 7 says, the end of all things is at hand. Talking about the end of the world. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. 
2 Timothy 4, 5, as for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, and fulfill your ministry. I've never heard somebody have a regret for being sober. No one says, man, you know, Saturday's just terrible. I was sober the whole day. No one has made a decision said, that was a stupid decision. I can't believe I made that decision sober. No one's ever said that. But most of my biggest regrets came from a state of being intoxicated. If you, if you survey this room, most of your worst decisions in this room were people from when they were in an alcohol-induced state. No one has regretted being sober. And so for me, I want my mind to be clear and sober. Two, I want to break the strongholds that have been in my family for years. I want to be the one who breaks down those chains, those generational curses. I want to be the one who breaks those down. And, and you say, what does that mean, Pastor? It means my mama was an alcoholic, but her parents were an alcoholic. People in my family are alcoholics. People in my friends are alcoholics. I want it to stop with me. And I know this, that what one generation does in moderation, the next generation does in excess. And so if I drink a wine with dinner, it means my kids are going to drink a whole lot on Friday night. If I drink a, a small glass of wine on, on Sunday afternoon, it means my kids are going to see that think it's okay. And it opens up this door, and it creates a generational pattern that then is reproduced from one generation to the next. I don't want that in my family. As a matter of fact, I broke it. I'm not going to let my kids restart it. My kids know that there is no drinking in the Gorley household. There's no drinking. And if you do, I will give you the boot you say, oh, Pastor, that's just so, that's so drastic. I'm not going to let multiple generations of my family that produce death, hell, sin, sorrow, guilt, and shame come back in through a 21-year-old or 22-year-old who thinks drinking is cool because they don't understand the long-term benefits of it. There was a research done at Embry University where they tested mice, and they would put this fruitful smell into the mouse cage. And when they put the fruitful smell in the mouse cage, they put a shock to these mice on the floor. And so after a while, even when they didn't shock the mice, when they put the fruitful smell in there, they would react like they were being shocked. Right? So that's common sense. Like, you know, if you smell this and you get shocked, when you start smelling that again, you'll start thinking you're going to get shocked. But when they mated those mice, the children of those mice, first generation, when they smelt the same fruitful smell, reacted like they were being shocked. And it's epigenetics. It's, it's a layer of genetics right above the chromosome that produces characteristics or traits when you reproduce. So the first generation, when that first generation reproduced, when the second generation smelt the same fruitful smell, they reacted the same way as if they were being shocked up to seven generations, what is exactly the Bible says that is reproduced for seven generations. So you may drink and think it's not going to hurt, but that's going to be passed on for seven generations through your kids. And I will say this, if you're that selfish, there's probably a gospel problem somewhere. Because the gospel is selfless. I want my family to be set free of the things that have held my family back for hundreds of years. Number three, I want to be wise with my decisions and my behaviors. And I don't think you can be wise when you're drinking. We know that one drink affects the, the mind. We know that one drink affects how your mind operates and functions. And Proverbs 20, verse 1 says, Wine is a mocker and strong drink is raging. And whoever is deceived thereby is not wise. Right? So my whole role in this church is to make decisions. The elder's job, or to make decisions. 
How could we say we're making the best decision possible if we're being influenced by a chemical? For you in your marriage, how do you make the best decisions possible? With wisdom. For your kids, with wisdom. And it says wine is a mocker. What that means is it mocks you by making you think you're doing something that's right, but you're actually doing something that's wrong. And it makes fun of you for doing that. That's why when you go to a casino, and I know some of y'all have been to casinos, the alcohol is free. You know why? Because the more you drink, the more you spend. And the more you drink, the more unwise you get. And that's why the casino always wins. If you apply that principle to life, that the more you drink, the less wise you become, you end up spending your life betting on your life instead of living your life. Number four, I don't want to give Satan an open door into my life. That you have the victory in Jesus. Touch your neighbor and say you have victory in Jesus. You have victory in Jesus. Satan can't pluck you out of God's hand. He can't get you out of your salvation. But if you give him an open door, he sure can do a whole lot of damage. And so as a believer, I have this victory in Jesus. I'm standing firm in the foundation of the gospel, in my salvation, in my victory, and in faith. But if I start giving him an open door, he can then begin working from the inside out to destroy what God has built in me. He said, well, pastor, like, what does that even look like? It means that the enemy only can work with what you give him. That's all. A couple of verses, he says in Ephesians 4, 26, 27, Be angry, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down in your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. 1 Peter 5, 8, be sober-minded and be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. What that means is when you're drinking, you're not watching. And when you're drinking and you're not watching, now he can come in and begin to devour you from the inside out, devour your marriage, devour your family, devour your finances, devour your ministry, all these things. And what I've seen so many times with, with believers is the path starts from they get saved, they begin to drink in moderation, and they get less wise, and it leads to this trajectory of unwise decision after unwise decision until the enemy gets a stronghold and begins to destroy them. See, when pastors, you know, me and Toy were with Bill Hybels, well, it was eight, eight years ago, Bill Hybels, Willow Creek Association, Willow Creek Church, one of those influential pastors in America. We're there, it was a slosh fest at this reception. I mean, drinking everywhere. We got up and left. There's another pastor friend of mine that was there. He told me the next day, he's like, there was people passed out on the grass. The next day, I'm in a session. It's like 30 of us with Bill Hybels and Henry Cloud, who wrote a bunch of uh, Christian books. And Bill starts talking about, oh, he's telling this story. I was in Ukraine. We planted this church. And, and, you know, it's just so beautiful. And I'll go back to the hotel room. And I send this email off. And I start thinking, I don't know if that was God or I'd already drank too much. Let me help you. If you're a leader and a pastor or a person and you don't know the difference between drinking too much or being led by the Spirit, you are way out of bounds. And so Bill makes this comment. And I, we left until I, I was like, this, he's going to fall. This is not good. About a year later, it comes to find out Bill had been having multiple affairs while he was traveling. I don't think it was just because he had having affairs. I think he was drinking a little too much on the road and would knock on doors of female staff because his wisdom had depleted. He'd given the enemy an open door that destroyed one of the most influential churches in America. Number five, I am called to live at a higher standard. I believe every Christian is called to live at a higher standard. 
I believe in church, you know, if you come here and you attend here, Pastor, are you saying if I drink, I'm a sinner? No, I'm, not, I'm saying if you drink in moderation, you drink a now half glass of wine with dinner, whatever. But if you're representing the church in the kingdom to the world around us, you are called to a higher standard. If you're a small group leader, if you're on the worship team, if you're a champion, you're called to a higher standard because we're entrusting you with the anointing of this house and the gospel of the kingdom. Why would we treat that with such kid gloves that it's okay to, to drop it for a glass of alcohol or wine? And biblically, it's very clear that leaders aren't supposed to drink. It says this, Leviticus 10.9, Levites, do not drink wine or strong drink. In Kings, Proverbs 31, 4 to 5, it is not for kings, O Lemuel. It is not for kings to drink wine or for rulers to desire strong drink, for they will drink and forget what is decreed and pervert the rights of all the afflicted. The Nazarites, number 6, 2 through 3, speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, when a man or woman makes a special vow, the vow of a Nazarite, to dedicate himself to the Lord, he shall abstain from wine and strong drink. Drink no vinegar, whether made from wine or strong drink, nor shall he drink any grape juice or eat fresh, uh, eat fresh or dried grapes. It's like the Bible celebrates abstaining from alcohol. Celebrates it. But for leaders, it's an expectation. Now, this is where kind of the rubber hits the road here. We've had people like this. Y'all may call this a stage. This is not a stage. This is a platform. You say, Pastor, what's the difference? A stage is for performing. A platform is for influence. And so when we allow someone to lead you in worship, we are giving them a platform for influencing you and your family and your kids. Part of our covenant is, hey, if, if you're going to be on this platform, we're going to give you this influence, you need to abstain from drinking alcohol. That means beers, wine, whatever. We want you to abstain because what we carry is too important. We don't want to risk it. We don't want to risk what God has given us, this responsibility. We don't want to sacrifice it for just a few freedoms. And we've had people that said, you know what, that's too legalistic for me. I'm not going to be up there. And that's fine. It just shows you the heart is that you would rather drink alcohol than carry the anointing. Right? And that's okay. That's, that's your belief. But if you're going to follow the Lord and carry the anointing or the presence of God, you got to abstain. We've had other people, when we had that conversation, they'd say, listen, you know, I, I do drink a beer with dinner every once in a while. I won't do that because it's so important for me to be part of this team and to carry what God has called us to carry. That's pivotal. That's, that's beautiful. It means I have this freedom, but I'm going to sacrifice this freedom for what God is doing. You know, Shaquille O'Neal doesn't even drink. And they asked him, he said, I may drink. I drink after some of our championships with my dad at my home. And I asked him, and they said, why? He said, because look at what I built. He said, if I had too many drinks at dinner and I went home and drove and got a DUI, if I did something stupid because I was drinking at a restaurant or somebody accused me of this or that, I'd ruin this empire I built for my mom and my kids. Like that, that's crazy to me to think that somebody in the world looks at money that importantly. That I'm not going to drink so I want to risk this money. But the people in the church are willing to drink and risk the anointing. That is wild to me. The moral failures I've seen, that I've seen so many moral failures in church world, pastor after pastor after pastor, and the common denominator is always alcohol. Whether it's money issues, sexual issues, anger issues, whatever it may be, it always goes back to alcohol. And I am called to a higher standard, and I believe you are called to a higher standard. Number six, I want to use my freedom to serve and love other people, not to serve myself. This is big. I want to use the freedoms. Jesus bought my freedom. 
I'm free, it says in Romans 14, and Paul even says later on, that I'm free to do anything, but not everything's beneficial. Right? So I, if I wanted to, I could drink alcohol. But why would I use my freedoms to serve myself and what I want to do? When I can use my freedoms to serve other people and to help them be delivered from what God has called them to, what God has brought them through, so they can have freedom. It says this, Romans 14, 13, Therefore let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of another brother. What that means is freedom has responsibility. In America, your freedoms have a responsibility. But in the kingdom of heaven, your freedoms have a responsibility. If you only use your freedoms to benefit yourself, you've missed the gospel. But if you use your freedoms to serve other people, that's what the gospel's about. I've been set free. I want you to be set free. But if you think the gospel is just about you enjoying the benefits of salvation, you've missed it. And for me, I want to make sure that I'm not risking somebody else's salvation or freedom because I want to have a drink or a glass of wine. That's crazy. Do you know how many people we've watched get set free from drugs and alcohol? Do you know how many people I've watched their life going to hell in a handbasket? And God delivers them and sets them free from drug abuse or alcohol abuse. You know, people I've watched, they were repeating the same patterns they'd seen in their mama and their grandparents over, and we watched them patterns broken in their life. What kind of pastor, what kind of person would I be that if I ran into them at a restaurant and they saw me with a beer, and they all of a sudden thought it was okay to drink again, to watch them go back to the same hell in a handbasket life they were living before? All because I was that selfish of a person that wanted to enjoy my drink at the expense of somebody else. See, true gospel love is when I'm willing to sacrifice something to serve somebody else. And that's what that principle means to me. And number seven, I want my body to be the temple of the Holy Spirit. I want to treat my body like the temple of the Holy Spirit. This is the Holy Spirit's temple. 1 Corinthians 6, 19-20. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? within you, whom you have from God. You are not your own. You are bought with a price to glorify God in your body. Right, so this body is not just my body. It was bought with the price of the blood of Jesus. But it's not just my body. It's actually the temple. It's the church of the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit lives in me. So I have to treat this temple the way he expects it to be treated. Now granted, I may drink a little too much coffee, I may eat too much pasta when in Italy, I may eat too much pizza, like, and it may get a little bit bigger of a temple, but it's still his temple. And I got to treat it like it's his temple, which means I don't get to choose what I put in there. And the health benefits alone of not drinking is reason enough. When you start looking at how alcohol affects the body, throw some of those, that graphic up. They used to say, the New York Times did a study, NHI did a study. They Remember years ago they said, hey, a glass of wine a day is good for your heart. They actually realized that study was skewed because they were studying people that actually had healthy lifestyles to begin with, and so it was skewed. Now they said there's actually no possible positive benefits from drinking alcohol, that even drinking a glass of alcohol a day has negative effects on the body. Many of us think, well, I'm not an alcoholic, it's not going to affect me. No, one glass per day actually has an effect on your body. Your brain and your nervous system, we know it affects your brain. Almost all mouth and throat cancer comes from drinking alcohol or smoking cigarettes or cigars. 
the lungs, chronic abuse or chronic alcohol use increases alcohol lung disease, acute respiratory disease, the kidneys destroys the kidneys, the immune system decreases the immune system, keep going, the heart, most heart disease is connected to smoking or drinking alcohol, breast cancer, one of the leading causes of breast cancer in women is alcohol use, the liver, Long-term use, heavy use, any use actually affects the liver. Stomach cancer comes from alcohol abuse. The pancreas, it goes on and on and on. Heart disease and over and over and over again. And what they've determined is that alcohol actually affects the DNA. That when you drink, the alcohol infuses your DNA and skews the DNA. So when it reproduces, it actually reproduces bad DNA. And so for me, I want to be somebody that I treat my body the best possible way I can because the Holy Spirit of God lives here. You know, it's, it's funny, but every Sunday morning when I come to church, and the staff will probably tell you this too, when I come into church, I have to pick up at least one bag of the cheapest wine money can buy. Little box, looks like Capri Sun wine. Beer cans, this. And it's amazing to me because they'll, they'll leave it out there and people, I cannot believe they'll do that at the church. I mean, if you're going to do it at all, what difference does it make? We were at the Vatican last week, and I was amazed. We walked to the Vatican, and the first kind of museum room we turned to is there's a real mummy in there. And all this Egyptian decor, Egyptian gods and goddesses and idols, all these things. And I was telling twins, this is so awkward to me. And then you turn, and then we start going up to the Sistine Chapel where Michelangelo painted the mural on the ceiling. And it starts having these signs that says, no cameras and no phones allowed, for this is a holy place. Get in where you're walking into the Sistine Chapel. No phones, no cameras. This is a holy place. And I started thinking, what in the world? There's literally mummies of gods downstairs. There's idols in the room next door. There's all this stuff, but now this is holy? And it reminded me as I was getting ready for this message, that's how most believers are. Most believers would never drink inside the sanctuary. It's a holy place, Pastor. It's, it's holy. I, I would never drink. I would never drink at church like that. I, I can't. I want, or if I show up and you're drinking, they're like, "Oh, Pastor, I'm sorry. I didn't want to drink in front of you." Like I'm holy. No, you are the holy temple of God. If you're willing to put the alcohol in your body at all, you should put it in wherever you're at. But the reason we don't is because we're so religious. We start trying to compartmentalize. Well, the church is one thing, and my other life. No, no, no. Your body is the temple of God. And what you put in it matters and makes a difference. It's holy. He made it holy. He lives in you. Keep it clean and keep it holy. And last but not least, I don't know about you, but I want to spend my life pursuing holiness, not loopholes. The Pharisees, what they were known for, was not pursuing holiness, not pursuing the kingdom. They were known for looking for loopholes. Well, this is what the law says. We love the law, but if I do it this way, I can enjoy it and get away with it. You know, I love this. Even the divorce scripture is what they were using was, you know, you can't commit adultery, but if I divorce this wife, I can sleep with her, then I can remarry her, and they were looking for loopholes. I don't want to live my life as a Pharisee. I want to pursue Jesus and his kingdom with everything that I am. And you don't do that by default. Second Timothy says it this way. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Hebrews 12, 14, pursue peace with all people and holiness, which no one will see without holiness. 
Like, so for me, I, I don't know about you, but I don't want to live my life at the doorway of the kingdom. I want to live my life enjoying the fruits of the kingdom. I want to live my life. I didn't get saved to come to church. I got saved to follow Jesus. I didn't get saved to check a box and go to heaven. I got saved because he loves me. He gave himself for me. And I want to spend my life giving myself back to him. I want to pursue everything he has. And I can't do that when I'm constantly looking for loopholes so I can keep living the old life in my new life. So here's the question. There's, there's three responses, basically. And they're this. Maybe you, you're convicted that any drinking any alcohol is a sin, right? That's, that's great. Then your only option is to not drink at all. Nothing. Right? That, that's, that's fine. But also be careful of the temptation to begin judging other people's salvation based off your personal conviction. You've got to be careful. Number two, maybe you believe drinking is okay in moderation, but there's, you're not really seeing any benefit, and the risk outweigh any other benefit you could possibly think of. Right, like me. I think, I, I biblically can't say drinking is a sin, but I can say it's unwise, it's a mocker, it's ignorant, it leads to all these other things. There's no benefit. It's bad for my body, it's bad for the church, bad for my leadership, bad for my family. There's no benefit. And so for me, the only response is, I have the freedom to do it, but I choose not to walk in that freedom because I'm sacrificing that for the good of the kingdom. Maybe that's you. And the third response would be this, that maybe you feel like drinking in moderation is fine. Here's the question. Where's the line? Where's the line between drinking in moderation and drunkenness? How does this honor God? How is this praiseworthy of your salvation? How does this bless the people around you? How does this advance the kingdom, advance the gospel? There's so many questions you have to ask. You say, you know what, I believe modern, I can drink and it's okay. How does that benefit other people? How does that benefit your family? How does it honor God? How does it honor the temple of the Holy Spirit? And those questions are legit questions. So I want you to just bow your heads and close your eyes just for one second. You know, I know alcohol is a, a sensitive subject. I talked to David Hall a couple years ago. He's a pastor in Australia, and I asked him about their view on alcohol, and he says, telling Australians they can't drink is like telling Americans they can't own guns. And the problem with that is, it's basing the Word of God and the conviction of the Holy Spirit on the culture you're in, instead of the voice of the Holy Spirit. And so what I've been praying this week is for the Holy Spirit to speak to you. There's some of you that you've been numbing pain that God wants to heal, but you've been numbing it with alcohol, and God can't heal a pain that you've numbed. There's some of you that you've been drinking in moderation, and you know it's not moderation. You know it's an excuse for rebellion, rebelling against God. There's some of you in this room that maybe you've been drinking in moderation, but you know you should be abstaining for the, for the sake of your family, your marriage, the kingdom, your testimony, and people around you are trying to see one to the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's also people in this room that you, you're convicted that drinking is a sin, but you've been judging other people based on your convictions. And Romans 14, 13 is very clear. You cannot judge others based on your convictions. That God is their judge. Father, in Jesus' name, I thank you for this church. I thank you for the culture of this church. 
speak for the people in this church. And I just pray, Father, in this moment, Holy Spirit, you begin to speak to people in this room. Father, those who have dealt with alcohol and been set free, Father, I just pray that you close that door so they never go back. Father, those that maybe drink in moderation but has had no positive benefit to them or the kingdom or their family. Father, I pray just for you, Holy Spirit, to begin to speak into their life. Father, I pray for this church to be a church that honors you and lives for you above everything. Father, above all things, I pray that you receive honor and glory and praise for everything we say and everything we do in Jesus' name.